the book of Colossians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a series of sermons in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. We come this morning in our consecutive series, consideration of this marvelous book to verse 11 of chapter 3. I'd like to read verses 10 and 11 together. Paul writing to these Colossian Christians who have, through Christ, been forgiven of their sins and have been made new, putting to death what is earthly in them and putting on the new humanity in Christ. He writes this in Colossians 3 verse 10, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I'd like to ask that you use your imagination and transport yourself to Colossae around 62 A.D. I want you to imagine a Roman citizen. He's an informant for the government. He has been tasked with investigating a small sect of people called Christians. They're a very unusual group, and they exhibit very odd behavior, and the government can't exactly figure them out. They gather together weekly to worship a Jewish rabbi who was killed 30 years ago and has been rumored by some to have actually risen from the dead. Surely that didn't happen, but that's the rumor. And what's the strangest thing is that it's not only Jews gathering together in this little sect. The government has become aware that actually the majority of the gathering is made up of non-Jews. Many Greeks are there among them. What's more, several members of the barbarian tribes are also joining the sect. And if there's one thing this Roman knows, it is that Greeks and Jews and barbarians don't do anything together. They don't mix well. What's more, the government has also heard that apparently there are not only free men and women in the assembly, but there are also slaves among them, and they are treated as equals in their gatherings. It seems that class structure and social convention doesn't apply in these assemblies. And what's even more astounding is they don't just meet once a week in a rented hall together. They actually visit one another's homes during the week and they break bread together at the same table. The Greeks and the Jews and the barbarians all together, the slaves and the freedmen and women. Something is not right and so this Roman man, this informant for the government, he decides he's going to visit one of their meetings and gather information and then report back to his supervisors. And so, on a Sunday, he gathers uh, in stealth, incognito, uh, in one of their assemblies. He takes his seat in the rented hall, and before the service starts, he notices all kinds of different people among the 200 or so gathered together, and as they come into the meeting, they're embracing each other and greeting one another. Once they all take their seats, they sing a song together. And after some prayers and readings from their sacred text, their leader stands up. They call him the pastor. And ordinarily, he would preach. But he announces that this day is a special Sunday. 
and that he's not going to preach. They've actually received a letter from one of their highest earthly leaders, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. And the pastor says, rather than preaching a sermon, he announces he's just going to read this letter from this man, Paul, to the gathered assembly. And so he reads. This Roman man here who's gathering information as a spy, he hears all kinds of extraordinary things from this letter about this man, Jesus, who they call Christ, things he's never heard before. And so he hears this about this man, Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He also hears this, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then this, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And then this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with His legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And then He gets to this statement. We have it in Colossians 3. 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Suddenly, whatever this man would be thinking, he is coming to understand what it is that has brought all these vastly different people together in one room. This is our text this morning in Colossians 3, verse 11. I'd like to open it up under two main headings. I'd like us to consider, first of all, the reality of Christian unity, and secondly, the source of Christian unity, and then we'll briefly consider some implications. I just want to acknowledge uh, in the preparation of this message a great debt I owe to a former pastor of mine named Gary Hendricks and a sermon he preached a little over 10 years ago on this same text. Consider with me first the reality of Christian unity. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. He says here. Well, where is here? In verse 10, Paul says that we're to put off the old, we're to put on the new self. Actually, the word self in our English Bibles is not there in the Greek. It simply says we're to put on the new. And so commentators will speculate as to the the new what, the new self, the new virtues, the new, the new what. Most commentators conclude that Paul here is pivoting in verse 10 into verse 11 and into the verses that follow into considering now the corporate implications of union with Christ. And so some versions of the Bible will speak of the new man or the new humanity. We're to put on the new humanity, the new community, the new people that Christ is forming by His death and His resurrection. And I think that's an appropriate interpretation. We're to put on the new humanity, the new community. Essentially now, Paul is talking about the church and what life in the church is like. So when he says, here there is neither Greek nor Jew, etc., he's talking about here in the new people that God is forming, here in the church. We could say here in our own local 
church. There are eight groups then listed here. Six of them are presented in three couplets. That is to say they're opposites or contrasted groups with one another, like Greek or Jew, uh, uh, circumcised or uncircumcised, and then slave and free, an obvious contrast. But then those two other groupings, barbarian and Scythians, they're not really a contrast. They're more just separate groups that we will consider on their own. So I want to look first at the three couplets, Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave and free, and then we'll look at those two other groupings that Paul mentions. First of all, here there is not Greek and Jew. Here Greek functions as a stand-in for the entire Gentile world. So not just people who possess a Greek ethnicity, but it would have been all the peoples that came under Greek culture in the known world in those days. Of course, the Romans, the Roman Empire was in the ascendancy, but Greek culture is what had pervaded. And in fact, most children would have been schooled in at least Koine Greek and would have understood the Greek language. And so when Paul uses the word Greek, it's a standard for the entire Gentile world. Up until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you had simply the Jews as distinguished from the the ethne is the Greek word from which we get our word ethnicity. Ethne can be translated Gentiles or peoples or nations. In the Old Testament, that's the two groups. Either you're a Jew or you ain't. You're a Jew or you're a non-Jew. You're a Hebrew or you're part of the ethne, the nations, the peoples of the world. The Jews were, of course, God's special people. Everyone else was the ethne, the nations, the Gentiles. Gentile culture was dominated by Greek culture, at least in the Mediterranean world. Thus, the New Testament will sometimes use the Greeks as essentially a stand-in for all non-Jews. You can see this worked out very clearly in a text like 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. There we read, Paul writing to the Corinthians, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, Paul is comfortable just cycling through the word Greek and Gentile, viewing them as essentially synonymous in 1 Corinthians 1. I think that's how we should understand it here in our passage. Now, Colossae, the city where these Christians lived, was of course in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, about a hundred miles inland of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Greek influence was tremendous in that region as it was all over the Roman Empire. Now, considering this Colossian context in particular, it's possible, maybe even likely, that the majority of the church was Gentile. The majority of the church would have been non-Jews. However, at the same time, the church still came under a heavy Jewish influence. And we can see this in at least a couple of ways outlined in the book itself. Many commentators speculate that some form of Judaism was exerting itself on the congregation through the Colossian heresy, which is outlined for us in chapter 2, which we considered a couple of weeks ago. That heresy we saw in chapter 2 did include Jewish elements, uh, such as adherence to the Torah, uh, particularly Jewish laws related to food and drink, Jewish festivals, and the Sabbath. There was a Jewish ethos to that heresy that was exerting itself on the Colossian church. Furthermore, some see in Paul's teaching on circumcision in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, particularly the emphasis we saw on the need to have one's heart circumcised by Christ Himself, the circumcision made without hands. Some people see that as an indirect refutation of the Jewish requirement to be physically circumcised in order to be counted among the people of God. In any case, Paul begins his statement 
on the unity of the new humanity with a statement of the irrelevance of one's ethnic and cultural background for securing one's status among the people of God. The total irrelevance of one's ethnic and cultural background for securing one's status among the people of God. Here in the new humanity, and we can say here in the local church, whether one is a Greek or a Jew is of no advantage, which is hardly a novel statement from a New Testament standpoint, but still one of mammoth importance to New Testament Christians still grappling with the implications of Christ's death for the integration of the Gentiles into the covenant community. But this is part of the essence of Christianity. It will permit no ethnic superiority. And I would just say wherever in church history one finds that a doctrine of some kind of ethnic supremacy has been tolerated, he does not there find a faithful expression of Christianity, but rather a direct contradiction of it. The Jews may have enjoyed privileged status in days past. They may still have the benefits of instruction in the Hebrew Old Testament Scriptures, but their ethnic status as Jews gets them nowhere. Greek and Jew, as far as God is concerned, in the new humanity, the new community, are on level ground. One's membership among a certain ethnicity will not serve as either a merit or a demerit in terms of their status among God's people. That's the first couplet, Greek and Jew. Now the second couplet we're given, circumcised and uncircumcised. Though there is overlap between this couplet and the previous couplet, certainly, this couplet, circumcised and uncircumcised, narrows the focus particularly to the matter of religious heritage. So not strictly ethnic heritage, but not religious heritage or one's direct relationship to Judaism. Gentiles could, of course, become Jews by receiving circumcision and submitting themselves to other Jewish prescriptions, but Paul wants to make it explicit now that the right of outward physical circumcision accomplishes nothing in terms of one's status before God and before the Christian community. Simply put, the idea that Christians could be required to be circumcised as a means of entrance into the Christian community was obliterated by the teaching of the New Testament. Furthermore, the idea that one's circumcision availed them of some kind of privileged status within the Christian community was completely undone by the teaching of the gospel. A religious heritage in Judaism gets you nowhere in the Christian community, Paul is saying. Circumcision Subscription to the Torah, a spotless Jewish pedigree, this does not afford someone a privileged position within the church at all. Paul will make this point emphatically in another letter, Philippians, that was written around this same time, Philippians chapter 3. He will list his Jewish credentials. He'll talk about how he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee concerning the law. And then what he says is what these things I counted as gain, I count them as rubbish, as refuse, that I might gain Christ and be found in Him having a righteousness, not my own. Philippians 3, verses 2 through 8. There Paul says, whatever my Jewish pedigree, my, my circumcision, uh, my, my, my being part of this particular tribe and having my lineage in Judaism and having some, some, some education in Jewish schools and adherence to the religious forms of the Jewish people, it counts nothing toward God. All that matters, Paul says, is that I am in Christ. Circumcised Jews in the Colossian church would have had to receive this truth, and they would have had to disciple themselves and instruct themselves on this issue. They had to acclimate themselves to this. If I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to walk in Him, if I'm going to serve Him, I have to let this go. 
I cannot require this of myself or anyone else to participate in the Christian community. This is no longer part of His revealed will. And however much this might have meant to me, however much it might have meant to my parents and my parents' parents who were there on the day I was circumcised, I have to let it go because it is not part of God's will. It will not give me any special status before God. Now, the third couplet. We've seen Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, and now skipping past barbarian and Scythian for just a moment, consider slave and free. Here with this couplet, Paul moves away from considerations of ethnicity, culture, and religious background. Now Paul makes clear that social status, regardless of one's ethnicity, social status will not be permitted to give anyone a leg up in the church community. This is interesting to think about. You had some in the congregation in Colossae who were free, and you had some who belonged to the slave class in that society. Now, slavery was in many ways very different from how we as Americans might think of slavery and the way it was prosecuted in this country. Uh, People could have been slaves for any number of reasons. People sold themselves into slavery at times. Uh, Some were certainly dealt into slavery against their will, Uh, but it was very different. And in fact, among the ancient world, some have estimated in Roman society anywhere from 25% to a whole third of the population might have been slaves. So you were surrounded all the time, everywhere you went, by this class system. Some were free, some were slaves, and it had mammoth implications for one's social standing and the social privileges that one enjoyed. But every week, Christians would gather to worship and to break bread together as one. And some of them were slaves and some of them were free. But here's the thing, though that class distinction mattered out there, It did not matter in here, before God and among the community of His people. Maybe that distinction meant something in the world. Maybe the hierarchy had some relevance out there, but in the church, we are all brothers and sisters, and those social distinctions, those class differences vanish as we all take our seat at the feet of Jesus. One commentator writes this, a slave in the ancient world was, legally speaking, not a person but a piece of property, a living tool according to Aristotle. But in the Christian community, the slave as well as the free man was the brother for whom Christ died. In Christ, he says, there is no inferiority of one class to another. Men and women of completely diverse origins are gathered together in unity in Christ through a common allegiance to their Lord. There is no difference in spiritual status between them. Now, I'll ask you, to tease this out just a little bit further, to tease out these implications of this truth. If this were true, that the class distinctions of slave and free, prevalent and relevant in Roman society, but not relevant in the church, if if, if this were true, you could theoretically have a slave serving as a deacon, or maybe even as an elder, one of those tasks with the spiritual oversight of the congregation. You could have had a slave teaching or prophesying or leading the people of God in public worship. You might have had a slave woman leading the church's women's ministry. The fact that she was a slave meant nothing to the assembled congregation. She was a sister and therefore a co-heir and equal in the family of God. Paul is teaching that one's social position, 
One's socioeconomic status, whether high or low, has nothing to do with one's status in the family of God. Okay, now moving on from the couplets. We're almost done with this first point, the reality of our unity in Christ. We have two more designations given. We've considered Greeks and Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave and free. Consider with me fourthly now, Paul says here there is not barbarian or Scythian. Barbarian, Scythian. The barbarians were probably to be distinguished primarily from the Greeks. They would have perhaps represented two poles, Greeks and barbarians, of the spectrum of cultural, social, and intellectual sophistication. Paul makes this contrast directly in another letter, Romans 1 and in verse 14, speaking of his desire to preach the gospel to all, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. They would have created something of a spectrum in terms of social, cultural, intellectual sophistication. Barbarians would have been associated with various tribes and ethnic groups from all over the Mediterranean. Barbarians were known for not being able to speak the lingua franca, which was the Greek language. They didn't understand classical customs. You would not expect sophisticated and self-respecting Greeks to fraternize with those who had been part of barbarian tribes. And you certainly wouldn't expect pious Jews to associate with the barbarians either. Well, what about Scythians? This is the only time in Scripture that the Scythians are mentioned. There's no other reference to them in all the Bible. Who were they? Simply put, the Scythians were the most barbaric of the barbarians. Uh, They were the most wild barbarian class. Scythians likely originated in what is now modern-day Iran. In the New Testament world, most Scythians would have come from tribes around the Black Sea. Uh, Scythians were the objects of intense ridicule. They were socially ostracized. You see a Scythian walking your way, you pass by on the other side of the road, or you duck into an alley. They were mocked in Greek comedy as backwards and uncouth. The ancient historian Josephus said they were little better than wild beasts. Furthermore, the Scythians were ruthless warriors. After conquering a people, they were known to drink the blood of their enemies, rumored to do so in a cup made of the skull of their enemies. They were vicious and brutal. Many of the Scythians apparently stood out physically by their clothing. Most Scythians were covered in tattoos all down their arms and legs and even their upper torso, sometimes even up into their necks as well. That would distinguish them visibly from others. Uh, They did not wash. They did not bathe. Needless to say, they would have lacked the refinement that was picked up with the classical Greek education and pedigree. So here are these Greeks, these Jews, and these barbarian Scythians. It's Sunday morning. And here's Joseph the Jew. He enters the hall that the Colossian church has rented for their worship of the risen Christ. He's a Jew, so of course he's there early, and he's preparing his heart as a good Jew, perhaps reciting in his mind a Hebrew psalm. And then comes in a Greek man. He takes his seat beside Joseph the Jew. The Greek man is wearing customary Greek clothing. He doesn't seem to understand the customs that Joseph was used to in the synagogue. More than that, he's not especially literate in the Old Testament. In fact, last week when the pastor asked them to turn to the prophet Isaiah, he wasn't able to find it. He had to nudge Joseph the Jew to get some help to find where that was in the Bible. There's the Greek man. 
And then just 30 seconds before the service starts, a slave girl who has just gotten off work scurries in a bit frantic and slips in next to Joseph. Joseph can see the dirt under her fingernails that she is anxiously scraping away. Her sandals are tattered, as are her clothes. She doesn't have any makeup on. There's the slave girl. And then, a whole ten minutes after the service has started, the Scythian walks in, creating a big distraction. And Joe can't help but notice. He's big and burly. He has a long beard. He's got tattoos running all down his arms, and he's got a tattoo of a skull on his neck. And even though he has taken his seat three seats down from Joseph, Joseph can still smell him. And this Scythian, he doesn't know any of the songs. He can't carry a tune to save his life, but God love him. He's still belting it out, out of tune, in a way that everyone can hear. You have a Jew, a Greek, a slave girl, and a Scythian. And what does Paul say about them? He says, here in the new humanity, here in the church, they all belong. They all have their place. Here in the new man, here in the church, they are one in Christ. In the new humanity, the reality achieved through the gospel is that Greeks, Jews, slaves, and Scythians all go to church together. And they don't just go to church together and then sit in their respective pews, in their respective sections with their own kind, never interacting with one another. No, they actually share life together. Then they break bread together in their homes. And they sit at one another's tables. And their kids play together. And they're actually best friends, and probably some of them are going to marry one another someday. These people serve one another and look out for one another. In a word, they love one another. Whatever people might say about these clashing cultures out there, in here among the new humanity, among the people of God, those differences don't mean anything. They are completely relativized and rendered irrelevant. Curtis Vaughn writes, the obliteration of such distinctions was one of the most remarkable achievements of the gospel. So to summarize this first point, we've discussed differences in ethnicity and culture, Greeks, Jews, barbarians, Scythians. We've discussed differences in religious background, circumcised and uncircumcised, and we've discussed differences in social position, slave and free. In Colossians 3.11, Paul is asserting the reality that differences in ethnicity and culture, religious background and social position are not permitted to divide the people of God in the church. These differences are utterly diminished and relativized by the gospel. Racial, cultural, and social distinctions are obliterated in the family of God. Here in the new humanity, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Now consider with me secondly and more briefly, the source of Christian unity. You see, the reality of Christian unity, consider with me now the source of Christian unity. Here there is not Greek and Jew, Paul says, verse 11, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The book of Colossians we've acknowledged in this series is about 
the centrality and the supremacy and preeminence of Christ. Here in Colossians 3.11, in keeping with the main message of the book, Paul is highlighting the preeminence of Christ again, but he's doing so now against the backdrop of these disparate groups that are naturally divided from one another. And Paul's message is that through the preeminent Christ, these disparate peoples are united into one body through Him. Christ is the source of Christian unity. And Paul is emphasizing that this unity in diversity among the people of God, this unity that's bringing together different and divided people shows forth the preeminence of Christ in a completely unique and special way. What is it that could bring Greeks and Jews together into one body and can bring them both together with barbarians and Scythians? What is it that could break down the ancient dividing wall between the circumcised and the uncircumcised? What is it that could bring together slave and free at the same table and in the same family? Paul says it's Christ. He is all and in all. And these different broken fragments of humanity, they're all like different prongs that together come to display like a diamond. Each one, as they move toward that diamond to display that diamond, are saying something about the preeminence and the centrality of Christ that overcomes natural divisions, natural social, cultural, ethnic divides that actually do divide people out there, but in the family of God through this unity we have in Christ. Paul says we become one. He is the source of this unity. A solution to division in the church is Jesus. It is not because they all like the same style of music in church. It's not because they send their kids to the same schools. It's not because they all like traditional instead of contemporary. They are there and they are there together exactly and precisely and totally because of Christ. That statement, Christ is all and in all, is meant to contrast the centrality of Christ with the divisions that so easily separate people in the world. Christ is the great principle of unity in the church, and in Him all differences, distinctions, and divisions are crowded out. Paul says first, Christ is all. He is all, meaning He is all that matters. All our ethnic and cultural differences diminish in the presence of this great unifying reality that Christ is the sum and substance of our lives. After all, Paul said in verse 4 to these Colossian Christians, Christ is your life. He is all. Friends, He is our identity. He's our purpose. He's our aim. He's our Lord. He is all to us. There's not room for anything else. Christ is all to those who are in Christ. These other identity markers related to our ethnicity, our culture, and our social position are therefore relativized in the face of this new identity of being in Christ. If Christ is central to your life and He's central to my life, what more do I need to know about you? I don't care where you're from or what your background is or if you speak with an accent, or if you wear clothes I wouldn't necessarily choose to wear, or if you eat funny foods, or if we spend holidays in different ways, or even if we don't celebrate the same holidays. What does that matter to me? Jesus is all to you, and He is all to me. Those other differences are just crowded out. They don't, there's no room for them to intrude upon the relationship. Because for you and for me, Christ is all. They're rendered irrelevant, these differences in the face of a new, totalizing, all-defining relationship with Christ that we share in common. Paul says Christ is all, then he says Christ is in all. 
That is, he lives in all those who believe, regardless of class, ethnic background, or socioeconomic status. For all those who are in Christ, he is in them. What more dignity or status could ever be ascribed to an individual? So here's this sophisticated, classically trained Greek Christian. And here's this Scythian, and he's tattooed and pierced, and he smells, and he knows not the first thing about classical learning. What are each to think of the other? They're to think Christ is in this man. Christ is in him. Christ is in me. And therefore, we are one. We must be one. If Christ is all to him, and if Christ is all to me, then we are united in the Lord. Here's this pious Jew educated in the schools of Gamaliel, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. And then here's this uncircumcised Gentile who doesn't know the first thing about Second Temple Judaism, but he's believed in Jesus. Christ is in him. Therefore, I must love him. I must be united to him. Here's a freed woman with all her rights and privileges. And here's a slave girl treated as property. Nothing about their upbringing or experience touches the other except this. They have both had their trespasses forgiven through Christ and have had their records of debt nailed to the cross, and all of a sudden, whatever naturally would have divided them evaporates because they are one in Christ. These different and disparate fragments of humanity are said all to be one in Christ. But of course, friends, you recognize this, right, in all realism. Paul doesn't say that people cease being Greeks and Jews. Certainly can't go back on being circumcised. That's a done deal. Some of these people, whatever might be true in the church on Sundays, slaves still have to go home to their masters, and Paul's going to instruct them to do that a little later on in this chapter. Those class divisions still have some bearing on their lives in the world. These people still come into the assembly of God as Greeks and Jews and circumcised and uncircumcised, slave-free, barbarian, Scythian. And all those differences are not just going to immediately vanish. Of course, if they're in Christ, all of them must put to death earthly things. Scythians can't kill people anymore and drink their blood. And Jews cannot insist on Jewish prescriptions to determine who's going to be in the family of God and who's not. But among these different and disparate people, you would have had different customs. You would have had different preferences. They would have greeted one another in different ways. They would have celebrated happy things differently. They would have grieved differently. They would have had different preferences in music. They would eat different foods. These had different practices, customs, preferences. So can you imagine, use your imagination, here's the church with these different classes of people all in one place, how many awkward moments they must have encountered. How often they must have inadvertently offended each other. How many misunderstandings they had to work through. How they had to be long-suffering and forbearing with one another. How they really had to labor to get to know one another and to love one another. You see, though each one had become new in Christ, though they had each become new creations through regeneration, and though each had put off their sin and put on Christ, it didn't do anything to change the fact that the Jew was circumcised and the Greek was not. Didn't change the fact that one woman was still a slave out there and the other was free. It didn't erase the Scythians' tattoos. They're going to stay. Didn't give him a classical learning or even a bath. 
So what do our friends Joseph the Jew, the Greek man, the slave girl, and the Scythian do after the service? Do they just sort of go to their little groups in each pocket of the sanctuary or out there in the parking lot and chatter, chatter, chatter? Let me go find my Jewish friends. It's just so much easier to talk to them. They get me. Here's the Scythian. You know what? I, I can't deal with these. Uh, let's, let me just find my Scythian brother and, and we can talk together this week. Is that what they did? Is that what they ought to have done? I hope in light of this teaching, our friend Joseph the Jew would, when the service lets out, make a beeline to the Scythian brother. And maybe he fumbled and bumbled, I don't know. He said, look, I don't, I don't know how this is supposed to go. I'm not sure what the customary way of greeting you is. Um, I, can I hug you? Or would a warm handshake be more appropriate? I don't really know what the custom is. And I don't know, like, if you have anything going on today, but you know, my wife uh, has a roast back home she's preparing. We praise God for the new covenant. And um, you want to come back and spend some time at our house? I'm sorry if this is awkward for you. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know what the right thing to do is. And the Scythian says, you want to hug me? You want me to come into your home? That's the kind of unity and love that Christ, who is all and in all, creates in the people of God. He makes us truly brothers and sisters, lovers and keepers of one another. So that I imagine the Jews and the Greeks, the barbarians, the light of this teaching, knew we, we have to figure this out. And we'll offend each other and we'll step on one another's toes, but with God's help, we've got to figure this out because we're one in the family of God. Let me, in closing, put before you three implications for us in the life of our church. Three implications from this passage for the life of our church. Number one, in the church, racial, cultural, and social differences should fade in their relevance in the face of the preeminent unity we share in Christ. In the church, racial, cultural, and social differences should fade in their relevance in the face of the preeminent unity we share in Christ. Let me say this as clearly as I can. We are not the church of the Greeks, and we are not the church of the Jews. We're not the church of the circumcised or the uncircumcised. We're not the church of the slave or the free. We're not a white church or a black church. We're not a traditional church or a contemporary church. We're not a church for the poor or the rich. We're not a church for the churched or the unchurched or the dechurched. We're not a church for the millennial we're not a church for the boomer generation. We're not a church for the homeschooler, the private schooler, or the public schooler. We're not a church for the white collar or the blue collar. We are a church of the Lord Jesus Christ who is all and in all. We do not target one particular demographic group 
We do not angle the ministry of the gospel to one small little slice of the social landscape. Distinctions of culture, race, social status, age, wealth, education, background, whatever, must fade in their relevance here in the face of the unity we share in Christ. We are a church for the people of God wherever they've been, wherever they come from, and wherever they are. What makes us a family, an Emmanuel church, is not our solidarity in our skin color, in our cultural backgrounds, and in our preferences. It is not in our shared social groups. It's not in our hobbies or our private interests. It is not in our shared stage of life. What makes us a family is our solidarity in sin and our shared experience of the grace of God. What makes us a family is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from every stain of sin. What makes us a family is that God, through the work of His Son, has adopted us into His family as His sons and daughters and has made us truly brothers and sisters. What makes us a family is our shared union with Christ whereby we are united to one another. It's hard in the New Testament world to imagine three groups more dissimilar than Greeks, Jews, and Scythians, but they had to find a way forward in the family of God together. Well, where were they going to find their unity? If they wanted to develop a platform for uniting with one another, where were they going to find it? It would not be, it could not be in their shared cultural heritage. It had to be in the things of God. It would not be in their education. It had to be in the cross. It had to be in the blood of Jesus and what He has done in making us new. If you begin to think that what brings us all here and the reason we covenant together and share life with one another is because we all have the same shared interests and hobbies, you are dead wrong. Jesus is the center. He must be the center of our shared life together. He is all that unites us, and all that other stuff just fades in its relevance in the face of this all-absorbing reality that Christ is all and in all. Second implication. In the church, partiality on the basis of ethnicity, culture, education, wealth, age, gender, social status, and any other thing is disallowed. If you're taking notes, you can just say partiality is disallowed. In the church, partiality on the basis of ethnicity, culture, education, wealth, age, gender, social status, and any other thing is disallowed. There can be no partiality in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. No preferential treatment. Listen, there are no VIPs in the church. There's no A-listers or B-listers. Everyone in the body is valuable. And everyone has a place because among the people of God, Christ is all and in all. It would not have been, friends, a permissible attitude for the Greeks to say, well, okay, I see your point, Paul. I'm fine with some Scythians being in the church, just as long as they stay over there. Pastor, we're so glad to see that the Scythian outreach is going well and to see some of them coming to church. Oh, no, no, I would never have one of them in my home, but it's nice to see some of them sitting in the back anyway. Pastor, I don't know about asking one of the Scythians to lead the meeting. We were really hoping you'd ask one of the Jewish members 
You know, the Scythians, after all, they use slang, and I don't know that slang really has a place in the church. The free woman cannot say, well, yes, I'm fine having slaves in the church, but I really would prefer my kids not spend time with their kids. Nursery workers, if you kind of separate them, that would be appreciated. You know, that would kind of lower their status with our other friends. Not here, of course, but outside the church. We just got to be mindful of those things. We wouldn't want people to know we associate with a slave family. And besides, I don't want the poor manners of those slave kids to rub off on my children. How does that attitude measure up against this passage? Friends, that kind of partiality is straight poison. It'll ruin the church. And brothers and sisters, partiality can be a subtle thing. It can develop over time. We can all be guilty of this. So I implore you, if you see this happening, you see, you see some drift. You see preference being given to the rich or to the poor or the educated, or the uneducated, or the introverts, or the extroverts. You see real discrete partiality taking place in the church. You come in love, and you tell us, and we will endeavor to excise it like an aggressive cancer. You see this kind of partiality within yourself. You go to God. You ask, Lord, help me. I don't want to be prejudiced. I don't want to relate to my brothers and sisters upon the basis of partiality. I want to love all. After all, Lord, Christ is all and in all. Help me to see people that way. If Christ is all and in all, there can be no partiality in the church. Third and final implication. In the church, our love for one another must extend beyond our particular social or cultural group. In the church, our love for one another must extend beyond our particular social or cultural group. And I'll just say this as an aside. I'm not talking about love that remains only theoretical. Love that is practical in its expression. We have not realized this kind of unity if we enter into the church but then just stay in our little groups. You're not going to realize this kind of unity if you decide you're going to have the Greek small group and the Jewish small group and the Scythian small group. Can't have this kind of unity if the Greeks stay huddled in their little enclave over here and the Jews stay with their kind over there. You won't realize this kind of unity if you decide, okay, let's just do two services. It's not worth all the back and forth about preferences with music. Let's just, let's just do two services. We'll do one for the circumcised families and one for the uncircumcised families. Uh, the slave families, they can come to the 9 o'clock and the free families, they can come to the 11 o'clock. You don't need new birth to keep people huddled in their groups. But to get very different people to love each other from the heart, that will require something supernatural. Friends, this is why five years we've been together, we have encouraged a culture of hospitality in the church that goes deep and wide. I just put this to you, each one. I encourage you to think those who are able to have families in their home or spend their time with others. Think of the last ten families you had over. Are they just like you? Just think about it. Who, who's been coming through our home? Are they all just like you? And I just ask, brother, sister, can you begin to bring in Greeks and Jews, and yes, barbarians, to your table? Some of us have barbarians living with us. I have three. <laughs> can you bring rich and poor? 
churched and unchurched, black and white, old and young, educated and uneducated within the sphere of your love and fellowship. My friend, if these divisions are too significant to you as to offend you or to alienate you from others or to keep them from your table, I must ask, is Christ really all to you? If Christ is all to you and He's all to them, I promise you, you will find something to talk about. You'll be able to do this and you'll experience real fellowship with one another. This same perspective undergirds our approach to small groups. This is why we will not organize our small groups based on shared stage of life. We will not do the young professionals group and the families group and the empty nester group. We're not doing it. And this is why when someone comes to us and says, oh, can I please be in Bob and Carol's small group? Because after all, uh, we get on really well with Bob and Carol. We're really good friends. Our answer is always going to be no. If you are such good friends with Bob and Carol, I assure you, you will find a way to hang out with them outside of church gatherings. That's not what the ministry of the church is for. I'm sure all the Jews had time for one another. I'm sure all the Greeks went to the same beaches together and did a timeshare with one another. Now, our small groups are designed intentionally to bring different people together in fellowship around Christ and His Word. So we had a small group, I think it would have been not this past Thursday, but the one before. And to my left was Chrissy Chapel, single woman on staff with Solus Christus, very different background from my own, um, but she's become very dear to us. And then there was uh, Will and Angie Hathaway. Will is from Southern California. Angie, correct me if I'm wrong, sister, I think it's Alabama or Mississippi. They've just moved to the area, and then there was Christian and Demar Salinas. They're both from Mexico. Christian is an electrician. There was Greg and Sandy Paisley, an empty nester couple nearing the retirement years who live actually in our neighborhood. And then there was Kraft and Donna Bell, a couple that moved here uh, in kind of the senior years of life to be close to grandchildren a couple of years ago. And then there was Iris with her dear children, Celeste and Savi. Uh, Iris is from El Salvador. Uh, and then you had Burke and Lydia Shively. They're from the Pacific Northwest. They kind of look like it. And um, <laughs> then you have, uh, who have I missed? Ian and Liz Burley. I think Liz's parents are from Puerto Rico. And uh, Ian, I'm assuming his family comes from Scotland with a name like Burley. If we didn't believe that Jesus actually walked out of the tomb, maybe a few of us would still be friends, but probably not. But if Jesus actually rose bodily from the dead, we're one. We're one. Totally different backgrounds, hobbies, interests. But we have experienced over these months the most wonderful fellowship together in this group. We love it. Phil and Michelle Calhoun, I left you guys out. Excuse me. Empty nester couple as well in our group. Phil was a missionary in Mexico for years. We're all one as the people of God, despite our different backgrounds. It doesn't require much at all to stay in your little group, but to build relationships across cultures and across age and across diverse backgrounds and experiences, that's what Christ does, and that's what the gospel achieves. And so in closing, let me say as candidly and directly as I can to the members of Emmanuel Church, we must realize this kind of unity in our church. If Christ is to be all to us, 
if we're to live under His Lordship, if we're to walk in line with His gospel that has made us one, we must nurture and cultivate this kind of unity or we're nothing. This is like the earmark of the Christian family. If we can't be one despite our differences, we have no right holding to ourselves the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we walk in Him, united to Him, we will walk united to one another despite our differences. I'll give the last word to Charles Spurgeon in a sermon he preached on January 7, 1866. He said this at the close of his sermon. Have you been born into the family of God? Have you been washed with the blood? Have you passed from death to life? Are you alive by the life of Christ? Does God dwell in you, and do you dwell in Him? Then, my brother, give me your hand. Never mind about a thousand differences. If you are in Christ and I am in Christ, we cannot be two. We must be one. Let us love each other with a pure heart fervently. And let us live on earth as those who are to live together a long eternity in heaven. Let us help each other's spiritual growth. Let us aid each other as far as possible in every holy spiritual enterprise, which is for the promotion of the kingdom of the Lord. And let us chase out of our hearts everything which would break the unity which God has established. Let's pray together. We pray, Father, that You would please, by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, seal our hearts to Your Word and thus to one another. For You have directed us in Your Word that in the new humanity, in the church, here there is no Greek or Jew, and circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. But Christ is all and in all. Help us to live in the light of this truth. We pray that you would remove from within us every prejudice, every hindrance to realizing the unity that you've secured through the blood of your Son. We pray that we would love one another from a pure heart. We pray that you would so work within us to shatter every vestige of partiality. Cause us to love one another deeply through the love that we share in Christ. May we rejoice in this love and unity we share around the table in a few moments. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll please stand and let's respond by singing How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Thank you.